Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. What should you be advising your patients who are requesting their second AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine before the 12 weeks that are recommended? How will Novavax fit into our immunizing strategy? Dr. Gary Groman will address these issues and more in this podcast. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. Register now at healthed.com.au. Dr. Graman, please tell us about yourself. Hello, David, um, and everyone. Look, I'm a consultant virologist, and uh, I used to also work for the TGA for some 17 years, and I'm currently consulting to a number of groups, but mainly the World Health Organization. Gary, there's been a lot of issues in the vaccine front, both overseas and in Australia. Maybe I'll just ask you for a quick comment on overseas, just to find out what's going on in Israel and the UK, uh, countries that have reasonably high levels of immunization, but at the moment also rising levels of new cases. Yes, there is a surge of cases, David, that's quite right. Um, and I think the reason is that we're not, uh, as I've said many times in this program, um, we just seem to forget that restrictions are also important, despite the facts that we're vaccinating, uh, we're vaccinated. It's not a silver bullet. It's very, very important to keep maintaining general awareness about hygiene and even distancing, because having the vaccine is good. It'll protect you against those very important and serious secondary endpoints of uh, serious disease and uh, death, hospitalization, and so on, but it won't necessarily stop you entirely from getting the virus, passing it on to others, albeit subclinically. We still need to be very, very careful um, in both those areas. Yes, let's get the vaccine, but let's also keep maintaining reasonable measures of uh, distancing, hand hygiene, and so on. Which, of course, brings us to the issue that uh, the UK has Freedom Day. Uh, what, what do you predict? Well, I predict more outbreaks. <laughs> I think this is a bit of a pity to have a so-called Freedom Day. I think we need something more like what we do with water here in Australia. When, when we have drought, we have restrictions and we have level one, two, three, four, five, depending on the level of the drought. But we never drop below level one. There's always a basic level of awareness with water. In Australia, we educate our kids and ourselves not to waste water even though it's in abundance now, more or less in most of Australia. But we know the droughts will come. I think in the same way, we need some basic restrictions with the COVID-19 outbreaks. Um, for example, QR codes, wearing masks in uh, crowded indoor places, uh, not traveling unless you really have to travel, whether it's in a city or on a holiday or whatever. Uh, I think it's just important to be aware and consider where you need to be and what you need to do and what the risks might be. And yes, it's good to get vaccinated. Very, very important. It will uh, help enormously in controlling the spread and ultimately stopping all new variants as well. Um, but it will not stop you necessarily from passing the virus on. So basic restrictions and awareness, education are still going to be very, very important and a very solid role that GPs can play, in fact. Gary, for all of us who've heard you speak before, uh, this is sounding more and more like the Gary Groman mantra, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I have to agree with you, David. It's something I say to everyone. Yes, 
let's get vaccinated, but please understand uh, that human beings uh, carry a variety of viruses, in fact, all the time. And that's one of the reasons our hand hygiene is so important, despite vaccination. And this starts at the age of five and in the home before five in terms of uh, 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 hygiene education. Now, Gary, I was just wanting to look at the Australian situation. Basically, we have a shortage of mRNA vaccines. We are now seeing, if you like, two big cities in lockdown because of the Delta variant. And we have mm. seen advice uh, regarding the AstraZeneca vaccine change twice in a short space of time. Now, I'm not going to go to about, you know, the, the issue of whether or not AZ should be given to people under 60, because I believe the Ataji advice remains unchanged in that regard. But I would like to talk about the shortening uh, between the shots of the first and second AstraZeneca shots. And this is something that has been advised or recommended even by Ataji in hotspots. But what has never been spoken about is for GPs, how do we understand the duration of immunity? How do we counsel the patients? How do we know whether or not they might need boosters? And how are we going to think through this problem? All good questions, David, and thank you for them. It's really uh, critical to understand the differences now between uh, immunogenicity, which you can measure very nicely, uh, and protection, and also protection against those critical secondary endpoints that can be very serious, requiring hospitalisation. So the, the data is quite clear, but needs a little interpretation. So if you go all 12 weeks, if you have a 12-week gap, you get excellent efficacy now, efficacy, and therefore protection against all the secondary endpoints to the level of 95% or thereabouts. I won't quibble about numbers. So it's very, very high and highly protective. If you drop that down to nine weeks or eight weeks or seven weeks, or go even go down to six weeks, five weeks and four weeks, then that percentage of efficacy, immunogenicity goes down. Uh, so then we get into the 80s and then the 70s, the 60s. And if you have it four weeks apart, it's probably only around about 50% effective. And that's an approximation. Um, there are real numbers attached to that too, depending on the country and the vaccine. Mm -hmm. But what doesn't change, David, and this is the important thing to understand, is your protection against serious endpoints. So that's the important thing. So getting it at four weeks um, won't give you full protection in terms of getting the disease, but it will give you solid protection well into the 90s, 90 percentage um, of protection against serious illness and hospitalization and death. And that's the important thing to understand, which is why um, advisory bodies around the world have said, ideally, the data says 12 weeks, but we can shorten it and it drops down to 80, 67, uh, 50, even 47, depending on the study. Uh, but nevertheless, what doesn't change, what doesn't change is the uh, numbers of people going to hospital uh, and having uh, serious events. Now, this is evidence also in the field, in real-world data. In the UK, for example, uh, well over 50% of people have had two doses of vaccine, and yet there are surges of uh, coronavirus. But there's no massive surge of people in hospital and having serious disease. So I think it's quite okay to shorten it in pandemic times if the virus is spreading. Ideally, though, you do one of the 12 weeks to get maximum protection. Otherwise, the viruses can, in fact, still. Uh, move from person to person, albeit through mild infection and subclinical infection, 
uh, and variants may well arise. So it is important, if possible, to get to the 12 weeks. But in Australia's situation, with a few outbreaks threatening here and there in the capital cities, um, we uh, would like to pre-vaccinate or um, va va vaccinate pre-pandemic, so to speak. So it ends up being a pre-pandemic vaccine. Ideally 12 weeks, but if we have to, sure, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. But again, back to the Groban mantra, come <laughs> be really aware that you can still carry the virus and infect others, particularly unvaccinated people, um, and that could lead to trouble uh, as the virus moves from person to person um, and it may end up, you know, infecting somebody who's quite vulnerable. Uh, this is really important. Fortunately, in Australia, I think we have, I don't know the exact number for today, but I think it's well over 70% of people that are over 70 have had two doses now um, and something like 50% or 40 to 50% of eligible adults, that is, um, have had a single dose. So we're getting there slowly but surely. Mm -hmm. And even with our very small data set, um, Gary, we're not seeing those who have had two shots ending up in ICU or being very sick, even in Exactly. Sick. Yeah, exactly. And that's been really uh, a wonderful outcome. The people who have had AstraZeneca or Pfizer um, uh, have not ended up in hospital after being exposed in the real world. So that's uh, really, really good news. But again, they have to remember that they can still carry the virus subclinically or get mild infections and pass it on unwittingly. Well, there are two issues here. The first, uh, let's go to the first one that crosses my mind. Let's just say, um, Gary, that I've been immunised and I've been a little bit naughty and I get myself infected and it's only a mild illness. And then I bring it home and they are not vaccinated, for example. Now, will the disease they get be a mild infection or can they still get severe infections no, they from can. a mild, if you like, sure. a mild symptom? No, no, they can still get severe infection. It depends. I mean, it's not just the virus we're talking about. It's also the immune response. So children, yeah, of yeah. course, will have a stronger immune response and probably end up with a milder infection. For somebody who might be a bit older, a grandparent or an older parent, immunosenescence may come in or they've got some kind of other concomitant disease or underlying issue, yeah. uh, then uh, they could well be at uh, risk, yes. So uh, one's, one's got to be so careful with this and try and get that message over as people get their vaccine. You know, I think the message has to be given by doctors or nurses or pharmacists or whoever is giving the vaccine, um, that it's very, very important to keep up the most excellent hygiene practices and distancing practices that are possible until we're all vaccinated and even then still being reasonably mindful. Well, Gary, I'm going to let you not repeat that till the end because I think <laughs> that that's going to be probably the most important message we can give. But I, I just want to talk about a failure in messaging, if you like. Uh, whilst we speak about having the vaccines earlier, it has not been made very clear to those receiving it early that all we are trying to do is make sure they don't end up in ICU or at least don't even end up in hospital. Um, but um, the, the thought may be that we might actually be preventing infections. So I, I'm just not sure. There's a lot of confusion out in the real world what do you say to GPs? What really is the message we must give to our patients who are now coming in and saying, doctor, I want to have my shots early. What must we tell them? So when you say early, you mean the distance between the first and second shot? Correct. Ah, right. Yes. Look, I, I think it's, unfortunately, it's driven by fear, but uh, that's understandable. 
uh, given what's happening around us and what's happening around in the world. Uh, but we're in a much better situation because generally we are much healthier and having one shot gives us quite a bit of protection, around about 60% to the most serious endpoints. So we can take confidence in that. And through um, good practices in the community, uh, we can hopefully lengthen the time with the AstraZeneca in this case to around mm -hmm. about 10, 11 or 12 weeks. Then mm -hmm. we will get the optimal protection. But having had one shot is still pretty good. I mean, if you come across the virus in the real world, then that's basically now your second shot. And um, uh, if you're healthy and have a good immune system, then there shouldn't be any issues in terms of serious disease. Uh, but, you know, many people are a little bit obese or they might have some other underlying issue, uh, so they become more at risk. I think the gradient is quite clear that um, uh, the younger we are and the healthier we are in the community, uh, then there's less chance of severe disease. So getting the one shot is still important and does give you significant amount of protection uh, in my estimate around about 60% if you're looking at worldwide data, uh, which is pretty good just for one shot. So uh, it's, it's not um, ideal, but it's still pretty good. And if you're healthy and so on, then there shouldn't be any issues when you get the virus in the real world. Indeed, some people in the US very early on suggested not to give anybody two shots, but try and give everybody one shot. Uh, while the vaccines were still being produced, uh, reasoning uh, in the same way that I just described, that most people, the vast majority of people, well over 98% or so, uh, should, should be okay in terms of severe endpoints. Gary, I'm going to try and summarise what you just said. If my patient comes to me and they're young and healthy and they want to have a short duration between shots one and two of AstraZeneca, I will tell them that because they're young and healthy, and if they keep themselves safe, the one shot that they've been given already has already given them a 60% reduction in the chance of being hospitalized or having severe disease. And if they can, keep up the good work and wait as long as you can before the second shot. However, there may be individuals who might be a little older or obese or have diabetes or other issues that put them at higher risk uh, that's a different conversation. Is that right? Look, I think so. And, and I think it's a more sensible way to use a vaccine that we have available. There is a shortage at the moment and it would make a tremendous sense, in my view, to um, uh, explain it in that way that you just described. Now, there's another issue that's happening in the real world that we've never really understood how to manage. Uh, Gary, it's the mix and match of different vaccines. What is happening out in the real world and what are you aware of that is happening in Australia? Well, the uh, data shows that if you mix and match, say AstraZeneca followed by Pfizer, which is the most common mix and match, um, you do get a slightly better efficacy. Now, it is only slightly better, but nevertheless, a, sl a small improvement, which is good. But you also get, as a Lancet paper on this, you also get more adverse reactions. Now, they're not serious adverse reactions, but they are adverse reactions that... Um, people will suffer by getting the mix and match. Now, the data also says there's nothing wrong with homologous vaccination. And I think as long as there have, of course, been no issues with the first shot, say AstraZeneca, if there have been no issues, then I think ideally take homologous vaccine and then use the mRNA or the protein vaccine, which is to come as a booster. Mm -hmm. But it's true that heterologous does seem to give better immunogenicity and efficacy 
in the data that's uh, currently available. Uh, so it's not a bad idea. But I think it would be silly, I think, if somebody said, well, I had AstraZeneca and I was okay, and now I want Pfizer, and, and mm -hmm. patients can be pretty demanding. I want Pfizer, yep. whatever. But nevertheless, there is very little risk um, of having any sort of adverse reaction with the second uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. Very I good. don't know of any studies that have done Pfizer followed by AstraZeneca, but uh, as far as I know, they've all been AstraZeneca followed by Pfizer. Now, you mentioned adverse reactions. If we ever, if the patient ever demanded and the GP wanted, would give uh, AstraZeneca and then Pfizer, what sorts of things should we be looking up for and informing our patients of? In terms of adverse reactions? Correct. Well, I, the, the, there's usual very common adverse reactions of malaise and um, in, in, in duration and swelling of the arm and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're not terribly serious, but they might just go on for a bit longer, it would appear from the data, if it's AstraZeneca followed by Pfizer. Right. Uh, then some people have described nausea and feeling dizzy uh, and so on. There have been one or two cases of myositis as well. Uh, occasionally leading to myocarditis, particularly in some younger people. And, and we've seen the data on that that's come out as well. Mm -hmm. So these are just some of the risks, but they're vanishingly small in the sense that they're around about 10 per million, one in a hundred thousand um, for mm -hmm. myositis and myocarditis uh, for the TTS syndrome from AstraZeneca. It's around about 16 per million, although slightly higher if you're under 60. And for anaphylaxis for with Pfizer, it's around about, again, uh, 10 per million. Uh, and for Johnson & Johnson, the FDA um, have just published data on that particular platform where uh, there is uh, some risk of TTS um, as it's a viral vectored vaccine like Astra, Zeneca, but it also has a GBS um, risk. Yes. It was a little bit disconcerting, not that it was very high again, 10 per million, uh, almost the same as background rates. But the interesting thing was for the vaccine-associated ones, that 95 out of the 100 cases were are needed to be hospitalised. So they were more serious than what you would normally see uh, for GBS in the community. So there wasn't a spectrum of severity. 95% uh, mm -hmm. of them were really did need to be hospitalised. So that's what concerned the FDA, and they've put out a release on that. Mm. Um, uh, to inform the medical uh, and uh, manufacturing community. Yeah. Gary, last year you mentioned that there were very early signals of Guillain-Barre syndrome uh, with the mRNAs. Uh, what's reporting on Pfizer at the moment? There's no uh, definitive reports of GBS with Pfizer. That's above background levels. So that's been the good news there. Good. The main issue has been myositis and myocarditis in particular uh, with that particular vaccine and anaphylaxis in people that have a history of anaphylaxis. Mm -hmm. It's also a possibility because of the polyethylene glycol that's used to manufacture the vaccine. Good. Um, just quickly, I, I take it that no one has died from uh, myocarditis or pericarditis from the Pfizer? Not as far as I know. There's certainly been some very ill young men and women and it mainly seems to affect men actually. Um, uh, so... As far as I know, that's that's correct. It's all been treatable. And there have been very few deaths due to TTS as well with uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine. The next 90 seconds contains an important public health announcement. 
Hi, my name's Christine McCartney. I'm the director of the Australian National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. This is just a reminder to vaccinate all of our uh, patients this year for influenza. We've had a challenge rolling out both the COVID-19 vaccines and influenza vaccines. And I know that's particularly felt in primary care. But we are down on numbers vaccinated for flu this year compared with some of the excellent uh, rollout that's occurred in 2020 and even in 2019. Last year, 2020, we had almost no flu season and there's not much flu activity this year. It's never possible though to predict when and if a big flu season will come. People are quarantining, but we've seen COVID-19 breaks through quarantine and we could easily see that with influenza. In addition, we'd like to start to open up and have more travellers coming you know, in and out of Australia, particularly as the population gets vaccinated against COVID-19. With that will come flu. So we are on the cusp at some time in the near future in having another whopper of a flu season. And that's the reason to be sure to, to be offering flu vaccine, particularly to the most vulnerable people in respect of you know, serious outcomes for influenza. Just a question about the possibility of ongoing boosters, Gary. Do you see any numbers or data coming in that tells you that in time to come, we will be able to say, yes, uh, you will need a booster at six or 12 months for various vaccines. When do you think we will hear of these sorts of data? I think the data's coming through, David, that uh, antibody, although it tends to wane, is still reasonably strong in that nine to 12 month period. So having a booster at 12 months seems to be the right place to take a booster and probably with a heterologous vaccine, depending on what you had first, or using the novel protein vaccine, the Novavax, uh, has now produced and uh, will expected to be licensed shortly. It's certainly being looked at now by the TGA in Australia. And I, as far as I know, there have been some production issues, but as far as I know, the vaccine sh should arrive in Australia from about September or October. Uh, the first do doses should arrive and 52 million are earmarked for Australia. So they can be um, used, I think, very successfully as boosters. They've, they have also done a study down to 11 years of age and we're looking forward to that data. They're then planning to do step-down studies further down to three years. So there will be vaccines available for children as well. Uh, and I think that if they use a protein vaccine, I think that would be rather ideal as there are no safety issues associated with that platform as it's had quite a long history uh, of use in uh, other vaccines. Um, Dr. Graham, and I'm hearing what you're saying, and this is really important for GPs. What, what you're really saying to us is almost like this, make sure your patients are covered it, with the appropriate vaccine for the age group now. Uh, even one dose will give protection. But guys, really, when you come down to, not talk about a second dose, but about the boosters, you're really saying that uh, whilst you can have the other booster, so if it's as AZ, you can have mRNA or mRNA to AZ sometimes. What you're really saying that is that the preferred booster is a recombinant protein adjuvant vaccine like Novavax. And you have mentioned safety issues 
good safety data. And you've also mentioned that you, they're even looking at using the protein vaccines in children down to the age of three. It just sounds like a really, really exciting time now. And September is not that far away. That's right. Look, I think it could be a really good story at the end of the day. I know people are uh, very concerned at the moment with the virus popping up here and there. But we do have good vaccines. All of them are actually quite good in their own way. They're all a little bit different. We're learning about them all the time. We have more of the same coming in in terms of Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, Johnson & Johnson may come to Australia as well. I'm not sure. But all these platforms, yes, they've got some risks associated with them, but they are very small. Uh, and it will give protection. Even one dose will give significant protection uh, to the more severe outcomes. The second dose will give very, very good protection to these more severe outcomes. There are risks and they can be explained to patients. Uh, and, uh, but they are small when you're talking about one in 100,000. Uh, but nevertheless, measurable and sometimes can be serious depending on the health and age of the person. And then we have boosters and heterologous definitely seems the way to go. In fact, nobody knows how many doses of, a, of an adenovirus vaccine or an mRNA vaccine a human being can take. We haven't mm -hmm. done the studies. Uh, so heterologous does seem to make sense. And we know the protein platforms or kill virus platforms or similar platforms like that have a very long history of safety with many other vaccines, including the adjuvants uh, that are being used. So... You know, I think we can be incredibly confident that uh, we can really nail this thing with um, a number of vaccines that we have. But it is going to take a number of years before it continues to mutate. The variants become, uh, they may become more infectious, as we're seeing, but as we are also seeing, going hand in hand with that, hand in glove, is the fact that uh, they're not as severe either. So even though we see more delta around at the moment, there's nowhere as severe as the Wuhan strain, the original strain. And the original strain, by the way, has almost disappeared. So we're now dealing with four or five main variants around the world. And in the last, what, 14 to 18 months or so, we've seen, gosh, about 25, maybe even 30 variants since, but they don't all get to the newspapers. And these variants will come and go. Delta is uh, particularly prominent at the moment, but it will also disappear. Uh, by the time we speak again, it may have gone or there'll be something else there. Mm. So hopefully the boosters, because these vaccines are terribly clever, uh, the way they're made, um, that se uh, sequences and protein sequences can be changed mm -hmm. uh, very, very fast. Then a, a very good booster can be made, say, if we decided to make one this time, uh, and make, and make one for next year. Then in about six months' time, all mm -hmm. the information will be put together new sequences can be identified and a very good booster, a very effective booster can be made. They won't be 100%, but they should be at least 90 or so percent effective. And that's been an extraordinary achievement by researchers and manufacturing companies and so on. It really has been quite remarkable. Gary, you mentioned the fact that whilst we're seeing numbers surge, in some countries, the hospitalisation rates and death rates are not high. I do wonder whether or not Indonesia actually doesn't fit that criteria because we're seeing surges and are we seeing increasing deaths? And is Indonesia a likely place for us to see the next variant coming from? Oh, very likely uh, from areas 
uh, in that part of the world. Um, now, the problem is the vaccines that they're using because they're not even 50% effective. So the Chinese vaccines that they're using, which are uh, the Sinopharm vaccine from either Beijing or Wuhan, depending on where it's made, doesn't have very good efficacy in preventing COVID mm -hmm. and certainly very poor outcomes or, or results when it comes to protecting against severe disease. <laughs> On top of that, we also have lower socioeconomic status and far more overcrowding mm -hmm. uh, in cities and so on and even country areas than we do here. Uh, then on top of that, there's social distancing, hygiene issues and so on. And uh, they have concomitant diseases and, and other things that are going on in that particular part of the world. So they really are at a much higher risk. And we're seeing that play out now. Uh, having used one of the uh, a lesser vaccines, so to speak, uh, one that isn't as efficacious as the ones we're using, mRNA and the viral vector platforms, and later the protein, um, uh, we will, you know, you will see trouble. It's the same problem in South America where the same vaccines have also been used. And I would venture a guess that in other parts of Asia, uh, this could also be a difficulty. Now, it might, they might be decent vaccines to prime a person, but they're going to need heterologous vaccines that are better uh, to ensure uh, protection against severe endpoints. I know you work for the WHO, but uh, it's also a difficult issue for me. Uh, it's almost like WHO may need to make a statement about how these Chinese vaccines are to be used and not to be used, uh, but I haven't heard. Yes, well, we, there's very little we know about some of these vaccine types. There, there, there are five different vaccines being made in China at the moment. Interestingly, three of them are inactivated and not that efficacious. There is one adenovirus vectored vaccine, but that's only about 60, 65% efficacious. There is a protein-based vaccine as well, and studies have yet to be done. And the inactivated vaccines have been given to, well, billions or almost a billion people now. Oh, yeah. um, and, uh, and the results haven't been uh, that, uh, that terrific in terms yeah. of halting the spread of the virus or severe disease. So we just need to wait and see what happens there. But I suspect they're going to have to either boost with better vaccines or different ones. And as I said, they're making an adenovirus vector and protein-based vaccine, which I imagine the plan is to use them as a boost. Gary, just in summary, and there's a key message to our listeners, what should we be doing now with regards counseling our patients who want a short duration between dose one and two and uh, a little uh, gaze into the crystal ball? What will things be looking like in terms of vaccinations in about nine months' time? Look, I think ideally people should um, uh, take the longest time possible between the first and second dose of AstraZeneca. But if there is good reason uh, for them um, because of some condition or it might be necessary because of work or something like this, then yes, getting the vaccine between four and 12 weeks, the second shot is fine. It will protect against serious endpoints, but uh, will not protect uh, against infection and the ability to spread that infection. Mm -hmm. And people need to understand that. Mm -hmm. uh, but they will be protected against the more serious endpoints. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, with the Pfizer vaccine, that's three to four weeks apart. There's no need to shorten that. So, mm -hmm. so that's okay. And the second part of your question, I just... A little gaze into the crystal ball with regard to the vaccination um, arena in about six to nine months in Australia. Look, I think we'll be really well placed because the manufacturers will be able to 
you know, are starting to deliver now. There's a million Pfizer doses that arrived this week and more will come. And we have 52 million Novavax on the way, probably spread out from September, October uh, into the middle of next year. Um, and so we're really well positioned in terms of uh, being able to give people AstraZeneca and Pfizer, either homologous or heterologous, and then we can boost in theory with any of those, but you can also boost with the Novavax vaccine. And then by then, we will also have data to look at on children. Um, if children uh, want to get vaccinated, say high school children sitting for exams or university students and mm -hmm. so on, um, then that group could also uh, be vaccinated with, say, the Novavax vaccine. I'm just speculating there. Of course, they can get any of them, but uh, mm -hmm. the Novavax might be one. Uh, or a similar type could be the one uh, that would be best for children. And, that, and that's a personal view. And I only say that because the safety history of that particular platform is well known uh, and there's plenty of data behind it to, to support it, to give people confidence. So I think we can all have uh, confidence that vaccination program will be able to keep this virus under control. And hopefully within a few years, what I would expect even though we might see some more infectious variants, we shouldn't see any more uh, severity in any of those variants. And eventually it'll just become like one of the other four coronaviruses that give us what we call a common cold, although not necessarily trivial, but um, it should end up uh, in a few years time uh, being just another respiratory virus that we have that we can get a vaccine to and a booster to, uh, but then eventually it will peter out and just become part of the common cold set, as I would call it. The other viruses we need to watch on the way are, you know, we mustn't forget about influenza. Uh, that's extremely important to continue to get uh, vaccinations to that. And also uh, be careful with pertussis and so on, make sure people get their boosters. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there are other viruses and bacteria that um, uh, we need to be aware of and not forget just because our attention is taken up with COVID. A nice little example of that, David, is, is also surgeon norovirus outbreaks in the UK. Okay. And this is what's going to happen when hygiene levels uh, get a little bit slack. I'm afraid other viruses that are just as highly infectious um, uh, are going to um, uh, rule the day. Uh, and at the moment, there's a lot of norovirus outbreaks in the UK. Wow. Okay. Not yeah. don't take our eyes off the ball. Now, yes, I, let's not take our eyes off the ball, please. <laughs> can I just give you one more chance to repeat the Gehrig Roman mantra? <laughs> I'm sorry to be so repetitive. No, no, no. You've got uh, to. I think it's so important that um, uh, we keep maintaining our awareness and uh, mindfulness of uh, restrictions and hygiene, in particular, social distancing, uh, when and where to wear a mask and so on and not travel unless you have to, particularly if you're a little bit older or, or have some other underlying issue. It's a matter of avoiding the problem is, is just as important as dealing with the problem. And of course, definitely get your vaccine. I think that's so important and, and, and we will beat this together. Yes, let's set all the politics aside and the rest of it. Uh, we need to come together as a nation to be able to solve this problem and also help other nations to solve the problem. It is really a worldwide mm. problem, not just a local one. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because our neighbours are in trouble. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, Gary, just, just a practical issue before I leave you. What about attending sporting events where 20,000 people turn up? You know, it's a vexed question. We, it's, it's very difficult to 
really support that notion in the current climate, and particularly when individuals aren't allowed to go and visit their dying mother or attend a funeral or, uh, you know, do things like that that are, are, you know, require sensitivity and compassion, and yet we let 20, 30,000 people wander around a sporting arena, obviously that leads to maximum exposure. I mean, the more people you put together in one place, then the more chance you have of virus spread. It's the same for any closed community setting. We've seen it in aeroplanes. We've seen it in cruise ships. We've seen it in quarantine. We've seen it in any closed community setting. And while the logic is, well, it's an open space and open air, and therefore there shouldn't be any transmission, that's not necessarily true. We've seen so-called fleeting transmission in cafes, uh, people walking past each other and so on. So it's, it's very difficult to justify, in my mind, from a virological point of view anyway, given the situation we're in now, this permission for very, very large groups to gather together. We've seen it in the Tokyo Olympics as well, David, mm. people just coming together in a crowd, and there will be subclinical infection somewhere, and it will be passed on. We have to be so careful, so, so careful with airborne transmission and hand hygiene and so on. So, so careful. And remember also it's an enteric virus as well as a respiratory virus Mm. and toilet hygiene is also so important. And it could Mm. be another mechanism that we uh, tend to forget about in terms of uh, spread. And although it hasn't been proven yet, I'm going to just briefly mention ocular transmission Mm -hmm. uh, because we've seen this with influenza and there's no reason to think in my mind at the moment, again, from a virological point of view, uh, that the virus can um, infect the eye and then find its way into the nasal passages and the back of the throat and so on. So I, you know, I, th- I think that's also something that we need to look at and do a bit more research on. And I'm very pleased to see some people are wearing goggles and particularly those taking samples at walking clinics for coronavirus mm-hmm. testing. Mm-hmm. And we need more testing and we need our pharmacists on board now too to help deliver the vaccine, but also test. And point-of-care testing can be done in half an hour with a portable PCR machine. It's done with influenza in um, close community settings like nursing homes and so on. Uh, It doesn't all have to go back to the lab. And uh, such equipment uh, is available, and the half-an-hour wait is not that long. Mm. You generally wait half an hour to go and see your GP. So, I mean, you know, you can wait another half hour um, to get the result before you leave. I think, you know, we just need to be a little more clever like that. And and um, although you haven't talked about it, if you don't mind me bringing it up, um, there was a meta-analysis done on the use of ivermectin uh, that's just come out as well. Mm-hmm. And as a lot of the early studies have shown, there is the use for this particular drug in the very early stage of disease in terms of preventing death. And this uh, kind of thing also needs to be discussed. The whole area of using various drugs, and I know we're using dexamethasone and Regeneron to treat patients uh, and some monoclonal antibodies as well. Uh, but if this kind of drug, it, the meta-analysis is good. And you know, if this kind of drug uh, can be used very early uh, in uh, the disease of a hospitalized patient, then it may well save their lives. And I think that's something that uh, people need to be looked at. And I know I'm throwing my hat in the ring there. It's a little bit controversial. Uh, read the meta-analysis. It really is um, quite excellent. And, uh, and this is the kind of real evidence, real-world evidence uh, that we need to then finally make decisions 
about the drugs that we use. But we, you know, we have not only the possibility of stamping out the virus through vaccination and careful hygiene and distancing and so on and awareness, but we also need to keep pressing on uh, with drugs that we can use to save people's lives. And we shouldn't simply dismiss them based on uh, hearsay. Uh, so uh, the data is uh, now published and I, I personally think it's certainly worth a review. Gary, I would love another session to talk to you about drugs like Avamactin and its place. For example, I can imagine, I don't think it doesn't cost a lot of money, does it? No, no. no. Yeah, because it's I'm thinking readily available. in situations where countries don't have a lot of vaccines and therefore you need to give everybody their first shots, whether or not you can use something that's cheap to prevent this uh, while you give everybody their first shots and they go around getting the second shots, whether there's a role of some medications that may work in the interim. So that's a place I'm interested to look at. And if you think there's uh, some data or things worth talking about, let's have a chat. Well, no, look, there's good data on uh, people are looking at um, anticoagulants, um, which seem to have some success in seriously ill patients. Also uh, ARBs and even uh, statins, people are looking at as well, which have some effect. Um, uh, people are looking at a range of commonly available off-the-shelf drugs, so to speak, that would be cheap to use in developing countries that don't have vaccines. But let's try and get vaccine to them yeah, as yeah, soon as we can yeah. through COVAX. Uh, it's so important that yeah. we try and vaccinate as many people, particularly in our region, as possible in the islands and in Asia, Southeast Asia and so on. Uh, it, it's going to require a mammoth effort, but we can do it in the next year or two, I believe. Um, as production also ramps up with the manufacturers and they're getting used to all the nuances of making these vaccines. Uh, so production will increase and there should be more available all around the world. Gary, I do always thank you for your time and a very clear explanation of the issues that GPs face. Hopefully we don't have to need to talk again, but I'm afraid uh, looking at how things are going, we will be speaking again. Yes, I look forward to speaking again and uh, hopefully we'll have some new information and new data to uh, speak about. Uh, which gives me a, a, a sort of, a, you know, if you can tell me roughly when you expect some good data coming out, um, especially Novavax. Well, the, uh, the, uh, the clinical data for Novavax is almost complete now and being assessed by regulators. So that will be published in due course. So there'll certainly be something to talk about there. We'll also get a better handle on the uh, GBS risks for Johnson & Johnson by then as well. Okay. The, uh, what's going on in the States, where they're using it. And we'll also know how well the current vaccines we have are doing against the variants. And um, obviously in the UK with Freedom Day, we're going to see yep. what happens yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, and uh, take it from there. We, we should also have studies in children from both Pfizer yes, of course. And, um, and Novavax to discuss as well. I don't think anybody else is looking at uh, children under 18. Uh, but the plan is to do that. Um, and, um, and they need to do it in a stepwise way. So currently, I think they're down to 11. But the plan is to eventually uh, step down and go down to three and, see the, and, and look at the safety and, and efficacy data there. It'll get more difficult, of course, because for phase three trials, you won't have control. So they may just simply have to do um, observational studies. But, but let's see what happens. All right, Gary, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks. Thanks again, David. Always a pleasure to speak with you. You have a great day. Thank you.
Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.